Welcome to podcast number 24, Counseling and Therapy, The Brain Trainers. I wanted to report the, uh, well, to record this podcast for some time now, um, considering counseling is, I consider it very important in the treatment of mental illness. And uh, today I wanted to, when I, well, anyway, when I say counseling, I mean all types of counseling that would be used to treat mental illness. Now, specifically, what we have been discussing, uh, mainly the depression, bipolar, and anxiety. And I also mean all types of counselors. And this includes professional counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, and anyone who is actually a professional in the industry. Now, often in my discussions with individuals about mental illness, professional counseling has become a topic of main concern. Some of the questions, should I even go? How long should I go to counseling? Does it do anything? Will it do anything about you? Am I going to have to talk about my childhood endlessly? What are they going to ask me? Do I have to tell them everything? Isn't it just a waste of money? Can they really fix anything? Are they going to tell anybody about what I've, what I tell them? Now, what do they do exactly? Uh, the list goes on for the questions. I am not sure if there's anything that causes more distress or concern, wonder, apprehension, and fear than professional counseling. I admit that for much of my life, I have actually seen a couple of psychiatrists and medical professionals. I really don't have any issues discussing it, but I definitely see why someone would. I, like you, have seen the endless comedies and movies like everyone else that really are more of a Hollywood betrayal of the profession. A comfortable couch and tell me about your childhood is probably the first thing that comes to mind when we think about counselors, psychologists, or psychiatrists. It is unfortunate that this stereotype has marred the profession that has actually done the most good when it comes to mental illness. Counselors generally get into the business to truly help people. Counseling is not a lucrative business when you consider the cost of the education, both in time and money, and then the resulting paycheck. This is probably going to be one of those professions that you can truly say that the love of what they do and the love of people goes far deeper than any paycheck. Now today, my objective is really to help anyone considering counseling or simply wants to understand more about it for them or for their loved one. I am not a counselor, so my expertise actually, obviously, is going to come from the patient side of it. Now, if you have listened to my podcasts for any length of time, you will know that I'm very much an advocate for counseling. It has benefits far beyond just mental illness, and I believe that a good majority of the people in the world could benefit directly from seeing a professional counselor. Why? Because most individuals see the profession incorrectly. The professional counselor is really a physical therapist for the brain. They're brain trainers. The mind, for the most part, is an area of the body that can be trained. I don't think we think of it as mind training. Um, I think, obviously, some things that come to mind there are brainwashing, uh, which has a very negative connotation and really doesn't happen in counseling. Now, we might also say that we're changing our mind, we're going to build better habits, we're thinking differently or out of the box, we're going to change our heart, we're going to learn to even mind our own business, we're learning integrity, we're learning honesty, I think you get where I'm going with this. We're consistently training and retraining our mind, either for good or for bad. 
Now, the mind, like any other part of the part of the body, obviously can get injured. Portions can die, strokes, so forth. It can deteriorate, as we have seen in the older generation. It can be altered by external stimuli, and so forth. Now, I know I'm not telling anyone anything new here, but the mind is where everything takes place as far as the body is concerned. It is the origin of our actions, our thoughts, our desires, our subconscious, and everything about us, from the way we walk to the way we talk, interact, react, fight, flight, you name it. Our mind is the control center. So the training of the mind is one of the major activities of our lives. When you consider our understanding from the level of the doctrine of the church, it is truly where the spirit and the body interface. Now, we know that we take our knowledge with us when we die. And the scriptures are pretty, pretty straightforward that we retain all of our knowledge. So not only is our physical brain imprinted during our mind training, so is our spiritual brain. We train both at the same time, and they work together in our body. Now, it is interesting to note that if you look at it, that when our physical body begins to deteriorate and our minds begin to slow, our spiritual imprint remains intact. But it seems the connection between the two, the physical and the spiritual, seems to detach a little. When our physical mind is injured or a portion dies, the spirit portion of the brain remains just as alive and active, but has no connection between the spiritual and the physical. Now, if this were not so, if our physical brain died and our spiritual, we would not remember anything when we pass back through the veil. Why is all of this so important to mental illness? I've discussed mental illness as a matter of the brain. Brain chemistry is part of the physical brain. that can go haywire, for the lack of a better term. When the physical brain goes haywire, it can affect many functions of the physical body, and this includes the emotional chemistry of the body. There are many portions of the emotional side of the mind that can be trained and controlled and retrained even when the chemistry side is a little haywire. When the brain is injured, the same is true about the portion that's lost. The brain can be retrained to do what it should be doing for the body. Counselors are simply brain trainers. They have techniques and abilities to diagnose and issue and then to retrain the brain to better cope with the issue or to fix it. But like physical therapy, it's going to take some time and effort, both on the part of the therapist or the counselor and the patient. Now, the world of the brain is still mostly unknown science. Now, in the last couple of decades, I admit research has done quite a bit of discovery, especially about the chemistry of the brain. While the gray matter is still a little, is still quite unknown, counselors, now when I say counselors, I mean the psychologists and psychiatrists too, do have a tool belt of training options with which they can work to help someone who is struggling. Now, just like medications, not all therapies work for every person, and you can't seem to train every brain the same. There are many similarities about brains, but ultimately the professional must work through a diagnosis and then decide on a best course of actions given the individual information from the patient. Now, sometimes the course of action is not as effective as desired, so the counselor can actually use a variety of techniques to help. The intent of the counselor is to retrain or to train the brain. If there are undesirable things taking place in the emotional stability of the person, then the counselor needs to diagnose what's happening and then help the brain to retrain itself and to help you to retrain your brain. Retraining takes on many forms. 
And it can be a combination of therapies. It can be medications to help get the brain back to a more stable functioning condition, a happier state. So you say, well, that is all good and well and makes some good sense. But why all the questions about my past experiences and all my feelings? When you go, some of those questions are going to be quite obvious to you as you talk with a counselor for the first time. And others will seem more obscure, but they do have a definite point. The questions they ask are not random questions, and they are not trying to pry the juicy details of your life so they can write a book. The counselor does not know you when you first come in contact with them. There are no ways to take blood or to look at a CAT scan or MRIs or other electronic measuring devices to determine what's wrong every time or to determine your entire history. As far as I know, technology is good, but it still can't read the memories of the brain. Okay, well, I say there are no ways to know about your emotional stability. They are likely to take your blood and do a couple other physiological tests. This is to make sure that key emotional and hormonal compounds are running at normal levels in the body. Now, even if they find out everything is running within normal levels and you look just fine, this doesn't mean that they're going to send you home and tell you that you're fine and you don't have any issues or difficulties. What they want to do is rule out the hormonal issues and other imbalances first. It would be unwise to retrain the brain and not make sure the body chemistry is running as it should. So other than the blood and maybe another physiological test or two, all the counselor has to work with now is what is in your mind. So the intent of the questions is to find out not just what is in your mind, but how your mind works as an individual mind and as you. They're going to want to know what is causing the distress and how long it's been happening. They're going to want a history of who you are, what you think is happening, and what even the cause might be. Now, this can be difficult. I can't remember what I had for dinner three nights ago, much less what I felt like three weeks ago. And I could likely tell them I was depressed, but how depressed is probably pretty relative. And most often, it's influenced on how I'm feeling right now rather than how I felt two weeks ago. The counselor is trying to get a history of a pretty complex problem, which mental illness is, that might have taken many years to develop. And they're trying to do that in just a few short hours of time. So perhaps you might understand when a counselor wants more than maybe one visit. The diagnosis is absolutely critical to the treatment, and so is the cause. So treating somebody with depression caused by a car accident and head injury is going to be far different from treating someone with postpartum depression. And most certainly treating somebody with bipolar, with bipolar syndrome that has a family history of it is going to be far different than treating someone with depression brought about by abuse or stress. So understand that counseling is not endless hours of you discussing your past and getting nowhere, although you might have to do some of that, at least discussing your past, but not getting nowhere, to help the under doctor understand you and the issue. The intent is really a diagnosis and then a process of training or retraining the brain. If you need to, look, if you, need to you can actually look at a counselor as a physical therapist for the brain. They have been trained in techniques that help individuals retrain portions of the brain to aid in a variety of things, including emotional stability. So what should you expect from your first appointment and then even those that follow? Well, as I've stated, it's unlikely that the counselor knows you very well or at all. 
So you're going to need to provide answers to all kinds of questions, including family history of mental illness and of all types of illnesses. The doctor is going to ask you questions about what brought you in? How are you feeling? They might ask them in several different ways. This helps them to pinpoint the problem. They might ask about trauma you may have experienced recently or even in the past. They might ask about your diet and your exercise. They might ask about medications or surgeries. What they're really trying to do is get a picture of you and your entire history that you really can't get any other way. Mental illness isn't a broken bone that shows up on some type of x-ray. And I've stated previously, for most people, it's a deeply personal issue and the complexities vary significantly. So understand that the questions are important and there is no need to hide anything. And that includes things that might be less obvious like drug usage or other types of, um, let's say, laws of chastity issues, um, sexual issues, things that you might want to hide maybe perhaps as a member of the church. Now remember the counselor is actually under oath and has privileges as far as court systems and other legal entities. This is important because it allows for them to get a proper diagnosis and treatment. So when you go the first time, expect the questions, answer honestly. Often when they go the first time, they're going to give you something called patient scales. And they are likely to ask you similar questions each time you're at the office, although they will avoid some of those questions about your history, uh, especially your medical history. As I discussed, the first thing they're going to ask is about your medical history, physical conditions, and your family history. You may wonder why they ask some so many questions about the physical body. Depression and anxiety can be and are often symptoms of a variety of physical conditions and illnesses. For instance, I have three autoimmune diseases that limit some of my physical abilities, and that's mostly due to pain. I have psoriatic arthritis and a secondary autoimmune illness, and I, you know, I take a couple of medications to help those. Now, if the counselor never asked me about my condition or my medications, and I never mentioned it, he or she may miss a very important part of why I experience mild to moderate depression every so often. My arthritis and pain is going to be one of those most likely sources of my depression and my abilities at times to accomplish tasks. This is true for many illnesses. So it is important that they cover the basics. They're going to find there you're going to find they ask quite a bit about your family. Even if they don't even if your family doesn't have a diagnosed mental illness, they still may question you about your parents and their behaviors. There exists a significant link between mental illness and genetics. Although they are not entirely sure exactly what that is, but they do know that it exists statistically. So family history is very important, even if that family history isn't diagnosed. Now from there, they are going to ask you some questions that are more subjective about how you felt in the past couple of weeks. Now I'm actually going to go over to the patient scale right now and read through some of this. Now the patient scales are simply lists of questions with numbers for intensity. Now, they have been developed to help diagnose and, diagnosis and treatment. Now, they do vary somewhat by counselor, but for the most part, they are really pretty much the same. The patient scale that I have is actually three pages long. Uh, actually, four pages, sorry, four pages long. The first page is literally about any type of physical conditions you might have. Cardiovascular, respiratory, gastrointestinal, Muscular, muscular, skeletal, neurological, blood, 
how you're sleeping, eyes, ears, nose, and throat, immune system, and then if if you're a woman, female reproduction. It, they're going to ask about every part of your body and if you have anything, any kind of illnesses of which you are aware. Um, the second page or third page in this case is something that is important. It's the initial understanding of why you have come in. Okay, there are like nine questions here, and these are the basic of those questions. It says the first one is little interest or pleasure in doing things. Number two is are you feeling down or depressed or hopeless? And these are on a scale of a zero to three. Trouble falling asleep, staying asleep. Are you feeling tired, have little energy, poor appetite, overeating? Do you feel bad about yourself? You feel like you're a failure, let yourself or your family down. Do you have trouble concentrating on things? Are you moving or speaking slowly so that other people would have noticed? Or just the opposite, you're speaking too fast, probably like I am right now. Being so fidgety or restless that you have been moving around a lot more than usual. And then the final one is thoughts that you might be better off dead or hurting yourself in some way. Now, next they're going to ask some general questions about how you're feeling. Now, I'm just going to read a portion of that patient scale that I have regarding those areas. You, now, you might be asking why some of those things are about breathing and heart palpitations, abdominal pain, dry mouth, and fidgeting, and so forth. Understand that depression and anxiety often cause very physical reactions in people. In fact, this is sometimes how it can be diagnosed when combined with other measures of emotional balance. Anxiety is especially prone to physical manifestations. So don't be surprised by questions regarding your health and these physical manifestations. One of the reasons that depression and anxiety and bipolar, for that matter, are so concerning is that it is more than mental. These illnesses have a direct impact on the health of your body. So the final page of this patient scale goes through anxious mood, worries, anticipation of the worst, tension, feelings of tension, fatigue, startled response, move to tears easily. They talk about fears, fear of strangers, fear of being left alone, animals, insomnia, intellectual, do you have difficulty in concentrating, a depressed mood, mood, loss of interest, lack of pleasure, early waking. So muscular, they're going to go through muscular, pains and aches, twitching, stiffness. They're going to go through sensory, uh, you're losing feeling, a blurred vision, cold and hot flashes. They're going to ask about your cardiovascular symptoms. So you have a racing heart or palpitations or throbbing of vessels. Um, do you have a constriction in your chest, choking feelings? Do you have an upset stomach, difficulty swallowing, nausea, vomiting? Do you have problems with urination? Do you have dry mouth, flushing, tendency to sweat, at general? And then they have a general category with fidgeting and restlessness, pacing, tremor of hands, you can see all of the many things that these mental illnesses actually bring out in individuals. Understand that mental illness is not just mental. Now, for most people, the first visit is going to be very nerve-wracking, especially if you've ever had any kind of aversion to counseling or are actually very independent by nature, as many of us are. There is no issue if you are very nervous or you have any other concerns or problems. The counselors are very accustomed to seeing it, and they actually know how to help this. 
They will want to relax, as that's the best way for your mind to work, and they can get the proper information out of your head and onto the paper so that they can help you. For most people, it's going to require at least a couple visits or more for the counselor to get to know you and then begin to diagnose the issue. If you consider what they are really doing and what they will accomplish with limited, sometimes even subjective information that they obtain, it is a miracle they can get anywhere without many visits. That, however, is the benefit of seeing a professional who knows what to ask, how to ask it, and can obtain a diagnosis without following you around for a few months. Now, a few things about counselors that are going to be important to you. Like doctors, not all of them are created equal. And like a doctor, you may not like the first one you go to, personality issues, whatever it might be. That is not a concern. You can change counselors, psychologists, or psychiatrists if you feel you need to. And most counselors are very open to it without any issues. There are some other important things you should consider when selecting a counselor. Especially as a member of the church, you should select a counselor that is a member or at the minimum, find one that understands the doctrines, morals, and requirements of church membership. Not all counselors in the world today agree upon similar courses of action and treatment, especially when it comes to the doctrine of chastity, the word of wisdom, as well as, well as other moral questions. So selecting a counselor of similar moral values is incredibly important. The church can generally help with this through a bishop or a stake president. Second, if you are a male or a female and the idea of discussing your concerns with the opposite sex might be an issue, then make the conscious choice to select someone of the same gender. There are enough counselors out there to do this. Third, if you are extremely nervous and really don't want to go, but believe there might be some benefit, then take some steps to make sure you get there. Tell a family member or friend. Have them make an appointment if you can't. Make sure that they remind you and that they take you. I would always recommend having someone with you for support. I have discussed the support in several episodes. Mental illness is not a singles game. It is a team sport and you are going to need help. You will need to find that help or have them find you whatever works. Last, the hardest part is walking in the door. Actually, after that, it gets pretty easy. Or at least it gets much easier. So what am I really trying to say today? Counseling is an absolutely critical part of mental illness. That isn't to say that it needs to be lengthy, last for years. It could be as short as a couple of visits, as long as needed to help retrain or train the brain. It is very important to think of counselors and as physical therapists for the brain and to get that proper diagnosis. Now, if you miss this step, you may be experiencing your symptoms for longer than need be. So where do I even start? If you haven't been diagnosed and you're looking for a good counselor to start the process, it's as easy as visiting with your bishop or a stake president uh, or a leader in the church. Although there is no need to do that necessarily if the LDS Family Services is near and available, and I think they've actually changed that name. But you can also call directly to LDS Family Services without necessarily a bishop's referral. And you can often find a referral for your part of the country or even the world for counselors who have similar types of morality for you, that agree with your type, well, agree as, with you as a member of the church. The important part is to seek out this help. Even if you've been suffering for a while and have only seen just a medical doctor for help, 
you may want to consider seeing a counselor just to see if a little brain training might actually augment your processes. Uh, most medical doctors would actually recommend this. Counselors can also work with parents, spouses, friends, others who are working with you without compromising any information you tell them. Remember, this is a team sport, not a singles game. That bears repeating a third time. Just you and a counselor can do some good, but with additional daily support from others, your outcome is going to improve significantly. Counseling is truly brain physical therapy, and if you can overcome the stigma attached, you're going to find a world of additional support. Well, that is all for this podcast. Until next time, and as always, remember, the Lord requires the fight, and then he can do the rest.